Greetings, everyone. Bonjour, benvenue. Welcome to the seventh of an eight-part podcast for Jacqueline Gay Wally's collectible collection of Venus as She Ages, a group of six novels under the imprint of IML Publications, a boutique press amplifying contemporary female writers, nomadic explorers of language, form, and the psyche. I'm your host, I. Murphy Lewis, speaking to you from Paris, France. Hello. And with my guest of honor is award-winning playwright, novelist, and screenwriter Jacqueline Gay Wally, presently with us from New York City. Welcome, Jacqueline Gay. Bonjour, Murphy. Thank you for having me. Sure, sure. It's incredible. <laughs> Today, we are parlaying about your last novel, Magnetism, in this Venus as She Ages collection of six novels about an older woman on a quest to find her eros and to be desired. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And over the last five podcasts, we've spanned the lifetime of your protagonists as they have aged just as yourself has as you wrote them. In the sixth novel, something is breaking open, or let's say something breathtaking is happening to your main character, Mira. So tell us about her. Um, she's, I think, in her late 60s, and um, the novel opens with her going on a date with herself and, uh, <laughs> and choosing what it is she loves to do, which in her case is walking on the High Line, which is by the Hudson River, um, and uh, going to the Strand Bookstore, which is a marvelous old bookstore in New York, and going to hear a Mahler concert at Lincoln Center. Yes. And there she meets a man, although this man is not the answer to all things. Um, during the course of the book, she remembers times when she was erotically connected to life, um, to different men, and, and even comments often that she can hardly remember anything about the men. But the moments, the moments of mm. whether it's being outside in the sun or the moments of being in a car, making love or whatever, and being desired. You know, there's a thing for older women where you cross over a bit into a land where you're not as desired, perhaps understandably. And, um, she doesn't want to give that up because it, to her, it feels like the juice of life. It's alive. It's sort of the stem of creativity and passion. And so she's in a sort of a, a study of that in the book. And, mm. um, and it's called magnetism because she is magnetized towards life and she wants life to be magnetized towards her. Mm. Yes. And I, I want to quote you. There's a moment we, where we kind of, see how she feels, how she feels about herself. And, and you write, um, she had been out of the mainstream so long that no one would take her seriously. She never factored in old age and how people don't want to hire someone older than themselves. Who wants their mother around that much? She had thought she could work eternally, that nothing would change. Mm -hmm. Yes, she's a typical artist in a sense, and not the most practical person that ever lived. And <laughs> yes. and um, she's uh, she still has to work. I and that's very good. You brought that up. 
which mm. is not a terrible thing. That's part of Eros too, to still work mm. and, um, mm. and, um, and be engaged in life. But mm. as you get older, you have to make your own work, make your own, yes. uh, your work becomes who you are in a way. That's a blessing. Mm. What you're mm. meant to do starts to happen. Um, uh, whereas when you're young, you'll, if you don't have money, you'll take any job to go forward. So she's not only dealing with this question of um, no longer being desired by men in the way that she had been when younger, but also no longer being desired by life in the same way. Mm. Um, now, that sounds you know, as if she's 90. And actually, I do know 90-year-old women who are pretty happening. Um, so it's, it's a novelistic situation. It's not that I believe that every woman is in that situation, but I, I do think that women go through a curtain where life is saying, okay, now you're in a different phase of your life. And this mm -hmm. particular woman wants to take with her what she loved about the past. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she's in this um, challenging moment with, let's say a kind of partner, right? Mm -hmm. With Kurt. And so I'm going to quote you about her thoughts around that. She didn't know about anybody else, but all she knew was that Kurt never looked at her in bed or out of bed. Once he said as he walked into the bedroom, you look beautiful once in six years. Well, that's, I think, part of her dilemma that she has a lover. What did you call a part-time lover? Uh, which is a kind of, you know, um, what often happens in older couples because they don't have the compulsion towards children or they don't have the compulsion. They've been marred by divorces. They, so they, they say, I'm, I'm keeping my own place, kind of. It's very New York City, too, right? Very. Yeah, yeah. And so um, they have that kind of relationship. Um, but he can't help himself. He's drawn to younger women when mm. he sees them, etc. Um, and so this augments her feeling of being pushed aside, I guess. Yes. Yes. In fact, there's a, this discussion that he's not in love with her. And I'm going to quote you again. And then they made love and she did not feel young and lithe because she wasn't. And so making love almost hurt her emotionally. But at the end, it began to feel good physically. And then it was over and they immediately fell asleep. Yeah. Yeah. She, I mean, she loves him in her own way. Yes. Yes. And they do love each other. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they wouldn't continue. Right. I'm going to read a, just another little passage that I kind of slipped in here that I came across at the, just as we were starting. Um, he tried to get her to hold him in bed, to make love to him. She told herself, to give, give, and she tried, but really she was the one who needed to be held. He had no idea of that. She was sure he told himself that she was the one who was difficult. She should be able to accept anything he does. What business is his life of hers? Well, he's uh, rather narcissistically focused and um, what's lacking in their relationship and why she still is longing for Eros out there uh, mm. is that uh, he does not go all in. Yes. She feels like she's a, uh, a convenience in a certain mm. way. Mm. 
Mm. And in some ways she is um, to him and perhaps he is to her, but she somehow doesn't want that. She wants the romance that youth talks about. Yes. And by that, I don't mean a young man. It's not that she's longing for a young man. She's just, she wants that hopefulness and that Mm. boundarylessness that happens when you fall in love. Yes. Yes. And even there's a young um, student Senegal, right? Mm-hmm. And he's turned 16. So you've kind of grown up with him in a way, right? You've been engaged with him for a while. And um, he was now 16. You chose to date an alien, he said. You just want someone you can't understand. Even this young boy knew she could not be tamed by natural causes. I love that. <laughs> yeah, because she and the, she and the boy refer to Kurt as an alien. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I love it. And um, when you go on that date, you dress up perfectly, right? You have kind of a V-neck black dress with sleeveless maybe or lace sleeves. I can't remember. It's very like, but you say the sadness of going on a date with of all the reckless and inconstant people in the world to choose from, she ends up with herself. <laughs> But she's hopeful, right? I mean, there's still, I mean, who would dress up for themselves and take themselves on a date and go to the High Line and go to the Strand and look for books, your favorite book? And who would go to a concert by themselves if they weren't in love with life, right? Yes, she's definitely in love with life. And that's what the book is about. I, yes. I, I mean, in the book, uh, she does meet a couple of men other than Kurt, but she... Um, is very much saying yes to life all the time. She's remembering times when she said yes to life and she's saying yes to life and yes. even now. And when she's in the middle of the concert, so she's gone to hear Mahler, right? Mm-hmm. And um, there's this whole like um, incredible scene that's happening inside her. You say Mahler's own death march with its haunting percussion was rising and rising now, absorbing her. And as always with death and on a date, even with herself for that matter, her mind turned to sex. Ah, it still could, she noted happily. As the pulsing of the music grew, her mind went to Kurt's perfect bedroom, its exquisite sheets and the city out there behind the blinds and how... Once they were naked and sort of snuggling, he moved her hand down with his shoulder to his penis. It was the first movement. So great. (laughs) Right, right, right. Right. Well, music, I think in this book, I don't know if in all my books, but certainly in this book, I think, plays a fairly big part. I mean, uh, music is, it's part of the juice. It's part of the juice. Exactly. Exactly. I'm going to continue with that because there's another reaction going on. So, quote, she would then begin playing her own driven music in time, stimulating him gently, accurately and lovingly with her little fingers, as he called them, or with her mouth. She did get a thrill in giving him pleasure, even though she complained about his sexual selfishness to friends. As Mahler was breaking into his own driven melody, she remembered making love with another man in the past who had given her pleasure. Lovely. But let's face it, it did not forge any long-term connection. Nothing changed except perhaps she slept better. 
desire is often more exciting than having to deal with the prize. She liked how Kurt and Mahler were insistent. Isn't that what she was trying to do now? The final movement, which could make her cry the long whisper of death. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, these are all the themes in the book. I mean, yeah. you know, aging is next to death. And um, uh, Mahler, Mahler's end um, pieces can often be related to death. And or, or and resurrection. Um, yes. And um, and the other theme is desire, being mm. desired and desiring. Yes. In fact, after that concert, Mira runs into a man that she will call Mr. Mahler because he's actually a Mahlerite. He belongs to the Society of Mallorians and they have an engagement. Right. There's like um, something happens. Yes, they actually have an interesting engagement. They meet and he kind of teases her about being out on a date by herself. And um, he asks her how she likes it. And she says, not that much. And then and then um, they go have a drink together. And him being sort of a, almost a musicologist, although actually he's a scientist in the, in the book, um, uh, he's droning on and on about Mahler, but her mind is going other places. Um, mm. And then they take a walk. And she tells him about witnessing something in a movie house about desire, not on the screen, mm. but in the actual uh, theater. And, um, and she wonders why she's telling him this. Why mm. is she telling this sort of sexual story to him? And then she realizes she's told him because she finally realizes she doesn't want to be alone anymore. Mm. Yes. Yes. In fact, um, he makes some comment. I'll, I'll quote him. Maybe I could be someone you could feel safe with. She looked at him terrified. If I may, he said, at the risk of sounding cliched or sentimental. What? What was he talking about and why now? Why doesn't she have another drink? I am saying, you idiot, that I would like that, he answered. For the rest of the evening, she held on to this particular kind of words in her psyche, like smooth stones that kept her from flying away. Uh, yes. So that, I think that's a future date they're on. And um, he really wants to have a um, relationship with her. And he's smart enough to kind of handle her delicately. He's a grown up. Mm. And I won't go into what happens to them because um, it won't be fun to read the book if you know everything. Um, <laughs> but, but, exactly. um, but he senses that she's, fearful in some ways of something, and he um, has good intentions. Yes, yes. But she kind of keeps going back to Kurt a little bit, and I'm going to quote you about Mira's thought. She goes, even though in loving Kurt, she was making love to what was missing in her own past. By loving Kurt, she returned to the existential place of hurt and loss over and over. Yes, Kurt is more familiar to her. She's she's been a loner mostly in her life, although she's been married and she's had relationships, serious relationships. But Kurt's kind of not embracing her fully. Uh, keeps her sort of where she she doesn't have to change her life at all. Mm. So it it comes with a downside and an upside, and she's drawn mm. to the upside. And, um, and Kurt has a kind of sexiness that um, she keeps going for uh, until such time as that really 
she's aware that he's just not there. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit like Oscar in Right, She Said, right? There's a similarity to the two characters, right? Very much, very much. Yes, yes. Um, I'm going to just jump you to another scene about music. I, mm-hmm. I love this scene because there's a a pianist that's confessed that he saw a television program about the starving children in Africa and it made him compose a piece. And um, you write, the melody was tender, hurt and powerful. She was lost. She had no boundaries. Would she die in a place like this? She'd hear Mahler as she went up to heaven or wherever she was going, but jazz, please, for her last moments on earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's in a jazz club uh, mm. at the, in that scene. Uh, yes, jazz to her is sexual and alive. And um, I think she says as she walks into the jazz club, she, she goes to jazz club, she loses 30 years as she walks into a jazz club. Oh, wow. So she just really becomes so alive from the engagement of the music, mm-hmm. the artist playing and... Yes. It's very fulfilling for her, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other thing is, is that there's this character that we talked about in the first podcast, Lucia, that's the neighbor upstairs, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a whole kind of engagement. There's a respect. She's in her 80s, I think, right? So there, she's an elder. She's also a writer. And um, she makes this comment to Mira. Lucia looked down at her newspaper your real problem is you have a boyfriend who doesn't want to kiss you. Yeah. Lucia has that. Uh, she's Austrian and she has a kind of um, that Austrian directness, you know, and, um, <laughs> and uh, Mira has enormous respect for Lucia because, and I think I, I go into it in the book and mm. I think they even talk about it that, you know, that here's a woman who she's a Holocaust survivor had lost everything and had to start mm. over. Mm. And here's uh, Lucia, who's an even an older woman than Mira is. Yet Lucia seems to still have her magnetism. She seems to still, and mm. all, after all she's gone through, she still has that. So uh, Mira has a lot of love for her that is unspoken, um, but uh, very alive. So there's a lovely um, relationship between the two of them and um, an understanding between the two of them. Yes, and she's the one who suggests Venus as she ages, right? Yes, yes, that's the funny part. Yeah, that's good memory. Yes. And you talk a little bit about that's too obvious, and she communicates, well, everybody writes about the obvious. And But in the end, Mira kisses her and says, well, that's probably true, but the trick is to sound fresh. How does one do that? Easy, she said. Oh, believe in love. So she's keeps kind of bringing you back to what kind of love do you really have with this mm, man? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. What's mm-hmm. really going on? She even talks to you a little bit about Mahler, Mr. Mahler, let's say mm-hmm, Mark. Mm-hmm. Yes. She wants her to take a chance on him. Mm, mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. But strangely, Lucia ends up in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Right. And passes away. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you end up, having to call friends, family, trying to find the way. And you meet 
a friend of the family, right? Mm -hmm. This man who comes to go through all of Lucia's things, you engage him, let's call him the third man of the book, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, he's cleaned out the apartment. Mm -hmm. And you're having a conversation, uh, Mira and the third man. And I'm going to quote you. She didn't have much, really. Books, as you know, old piano music, photos of the past, not the long past, but her marriage. Nothing really, oh, except your books. She had all your books. Oh, God, Mira thought, which I read. Oh, they are brave, he said. You say a lot of truths. So there's something about this man the third man that sees Mira as she really is mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kind of immediately. Right. Yes. I think I, they even have a conversation where it turns out his mother was a Holocaust survivor also mm -hmm. and um, friends with Lucia and Lucia in a way felt that they were more family than any family that she had. So she'd left everything to her friend and the son is, so it's almost like a nephew in a way, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, interestingly, Lucia had never mentioned him to her. Uh, he lived in England, but he's uh, over here, and, and now and now he happens to be living in New York. Um, but he explains this to her about um, this background with Lucia, which is all new to um, Mira, and um, it brings up her anger at what has happened to Lucia. So there's a kind of, from the beginning, an undone quality that she reveals to him that you don't see her reveal to Mr. Mahler or reveal to Kurt. Mm. She is in a state of real emotion with him because she really cared for Lucia. So their connection right away goes deeper than the other connections, which mm. are more social in a certain way. Yes. Whereas she's a bit undone when she meets him. She's also undone at sort of who he is because he he's a man of compassion and duty, but he's also honest himself. So um she of course feels she may be too old for him, even though they're the same age about or in the same age group, because she knows now that to meet somebody does not mean he'll be attracted to her. So mm -hmm. she's a little bit awkward about the whole thing. But they have a real connection, and um, he does seem to see her. I agree with you. Yes, and then it's almost like she sees clearly, too. Like there's a moment with him that Mira talks about. All of a sudden, she she has some a theory about evil, right, and people's response to it. And I'm going to quote uh, Mira says. Um, one is that some people's sense of ethics are larger than the evil they witness, and so they are able to recover. In other words, their ethics make them have a type of distance from those who don't have any ethics, or that some people have so much creativity in them that they are buoyant, no matter what fate deals them, and they have to make something of it. Mm. Yes, well, I think um, she's thinking about Lucia, the people who have survived, but in some ways she's also thinking about herself and just the whole, mm. or all of us in the sense that we are all dealing with death or we're dealing with whatever we're dealing with. But she posits that if your ethics are strong, 
and there are many ways of interpreting that word. Um, mm, right. You can face evil, you know, and if you are creative, uh, you can make something of it. Yes. You know, you can make a beautiful flower out of the dirt. And so she has to think that, Mira, because how else can we look at evil? Yes. Yes. And it's really her general philosophy. I mean, there's something that, I mean, in a way, all your characters are kind of doing that. There is this kind of willful movement toward love and life and beauty, right? Music. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, there there is this all through the the six novels and in a way this 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 magnetism novel sums that up in a way, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know, I I, I don't think I've ever spoken about this, but um the title for the novel Magnetism came to me. I was in Barcelona working on a job. I was doing some freelance writing about finance of all things. And I, um, conference was over and I took a walk on the beach because Barcelona's on a beach. And, um, and the, the word magnetism came to me and I swore to myself, I'd write a book called magnetism. Oh. So it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Be- just because of what I felt on that beach. And you had an incredible encounter with a, a man that you write about. Yes, right? that's true. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hmm. Well, the last, I'm just going to read the last few lines and we'll wrap up. A sea of feeling rushed forward inside her. And then she knew that sea, that eros, that music always would be rushing. She just had to stay still for it. Hmm. 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 Yeah. That's the last, I think that's the last line. Yes, it is. Yes. 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 All right. This is I. Murphy Lewis of IML Publications speaking to you from Paris with our guest Jacqueline Gay Wally in New York City about her novel Magnetism. Thank you for joining us, Jacqueline Gay Wally. Thank you, Murphy. Thank you for bringing these books out. Talk about talk about magnetism. You magnetized me. It's so exciting. You can listen to our podcast featuring Jacqueline Gay Wally's novels or visit her on www.gaywally.com or on our page www.imlpublications.com. This podcast was recorded on Zencaster with producer Sebastiano Tecchio, executive producer Alan Sledge, and accompanied by flautist Steve Slagle's Going Home from his album Spirit Calls. A bientôt. Talk soon. Ciao, gay. Au revoir. Merci.